standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadel. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. I had that work better than I thought it would, but most people say the pastor yells at us, and the pastor's wife, she's so sweet, but Kelly with that volume, she was the one who yells at you, and I'm the one who speaks to you tenderly. <laughs> Only if you park in our parking. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so this is uh, our third Sunday in the Psalms of Ascent, and that means we did this psalm that really names Jerusalem for us. So far, it's been this sort of thing we sort of read into the psalms, that this is the place we're going to, that this is where God has called us. But with this psalm, it really comes to the forefront that Jerusalem is the holy city that the people in this in this section of scripture is being called into. Did I invite the kids to kids' church, by the way? And so we've been sort of started this journey with this notion of sort of repentance. And then we move to sort of this, in the second psalm, this idea on the journey of where does our help come from? How are we going to make it to God? And this one calls for us sort of that we're there. It's this this sort of memory of what's in that place and how we're there. One of the things as I was doing my study this week is I was struggling to come up with, with words for this passage. I came across this sermon from long ago, and I'm going to read the first part of it to you. Impure love inflames the soul, lures it towards the pursuit of earthly things, which are detestable but doomed to perish, and plunges it headlong into the deepest turpitude. Holy love raises the soul to heavenly thoughts and kindles in it a longing for eternal realities arousing its desire for what neither passes nor dies, and lifting it from the depth of hell to heaven. Every kind of love has its own energy, and in the soul of a lover, love cannot be idle. It must lead somewhere. If you want to discern the character of a person's love, notice where it leads. We do not admonish you to love nothing, but we do admonish you to withhold your love from the world so that you may be free to love him who made the world. A soul enmeshed in earthly love has sticky wings and is unable to fly. But once it is cleansed from filthy mundane attachments, its wings can be spread freely. The two commandments of love, love of God and love of neighbor, are like a pair of wings, and as soon as they are disentangled from every impediment, the soul flies. And whither does it fly? Where else but to God? It mounts to God in flight because it mounts by love. 
Before it gains the power to do this, it groans on the ground, as the longing to fly is already in it. Who will give me the wings as though to a dove, that I, and I shall fly away and find rest, it moans. Where the shall it fly away from the hindrances that surround it, the hindrances that evoke the sighs of the psalmists. He longs to fly away from them from this place, for he is mixed up with bad people. From the place to the power with love to lift us to Jerusalem, to fly is already in it. Who will give me wings to fly as a dove? And I will fly and find rest, it moans. Whether there where the grains of wheat are mingled with straw, he longs to fly to a place where he no longer suffer close contact and association with impious persons that may live in the holy fellowship with the angelic citizens of the eternal Jerusalem. This is the psalm we have to consider today. That reading is from uh, Saint Augustine, in the, and he lived from about 354 to 420. What he calls out in these Psalms of Ascent is they're about the way the soul sort of is lifted up. It moves from these sort of impure loves that drive it to these pure loves. And I, and I love that phrase that he says that if we call you not, not to love anything, not to love the world, and if many people pause there, they're like, that's why I'm not a Christian. It's these Christians can't love the world. But he says, but instead to love the one who created it. What I think happens when we love the one who created it rather than the things itself is it frees us to love them as they are. For instance, if I were to love my kids or my wife or somebody as if they were mine, to have pure love for them makes them almost an idolatry that I need to form them to my desires. But to see the God who created things, to, to love because God has created beyond that, our love sort of radiates in a different way. People who we love are actually freer to be as they are. Such as the challenge of, of parenting, especially when you particularly see it go awry, which as a pastor you can, is they love their children as if they're their own, rather than they radiate from a creator God who has made them as a gift to them. And so they have this sense of control and need over them, that if they had been freed by the love of the creator rather than the world, they would find something deeper in that relationship. It wouldn't have the same overbending point. And so I love that St. Augustine calls for this, this psalm and other psalms to be about our lifting up of our souls. We too are to ascend. We too are to move up. Um, we too are going to some place. And, and this notion of Jerusalem I thought of all week because we uh, still think of Jerusalem quite often. But with that reading that... Um, Tara read for us during the worship set that there's this new Jerusalem that's coming. There's this new Jerusalem that God has prepared for us. I think Christians sometimes forget that God has this sort of care for this place still. That God sort of set up Jerusalem as this place where he resides among his people. And someday there shall be a new Jerusalem where we reside with God. That, that, that comes to us. That eliminates sort of death and anguish as it comes as well, that we await something as we are on this walk as well. But the thing I love about the start of this psalm is, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This is an invitation to severely preach to the choir, um, which you never, I don't think I ever really knew what that meant until I was a pastor. I mean, I knew what it meant, but I didn't really know what it meant until I was a pastor. Uh, I had the previous joys of working with a pastor who would tell the people at church, it's very important you come to church. It's a 
We're kind of missing the people who need that message when we say that. It's, it's very important that you, you're here, is what he would say often. That's a preaching to the choir, because the people who need to hear that message aren't here. Yes. Um, but I, I love this, this phrase, because it, it radiates within me. It says, I knew that I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, I remember growing up and my mom saying, let us go to church. And I don't know if glad was the emotion that I felt. It probably was definitely not. Um, but as I grew up and around the time, um, let's see, I, I finished college. This was something that resided deep within me, that I was glad when the people said, let us go to the house of the Lord. See, this is why I actually don't do a lot of telling people to go to church, because it's a hard thing to find for yourself. For instance, as a pastor, I tell people oh, I'm a pastor. And they're like, well, Sunday is my time to sleep in or go for a run or do this. But what actually happens is, is you sort of like shoot down those excuses. They're just sort of like whackable. Like you hit one and another pops up. It, it's not that people um, don't have good excuses to maybe not come to church, but there are a lot of excuses. Um, and no more than that, they're not ones who said, now is time for us to rise to go to the house of the Lord. They don't feel glad. Um, it's not something that brings joy or truth to them. I was talking, and I talk to pastors more than anybody should, but I really like pastors. I worry about myself on this, because I like pastors more than any rational person should. But I was talking to several this week, and they were talking about how we sort of um, get people who are spiritual but not religious to come to church. And I said, well, that's like an impossibility. Like, there's something, you need some sort of religious bone in your body to say that every week I go to the same place at the same time to get fed and to be with the people of God, to be there, to have this sort of religious atmosphere in my life. So, like, how to reach the spiritual but not religious is to make them religious. Like, that, that's, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, there, that's a valuable way for many people to live their life, but the idea that we can reach those people I was telling these pastors is like, you need that religious bone, that consciousness that says there's something important about this. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And the other thing worth noticing about this that's very hard in our modern individualized world is let us go. See, the, the spiritual but not religious on one degree, but often many of us, even within the church, is the moments I am closest to God is certainly when the people of God are not around me. Um, and if you've been a part of a toxic church, that's definitely true. It's much easier to go on a hike or a walk and feel closer to God than to have people surround you. But what the psalmist proclaims is that this isn't something that comes from his own doing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, fun, it's a funny correction because um, I don't feel like going to church. It's not clear that the psalmist felt like going to church. It was something they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. It was something external to him that propelled him to go. He felt joyful about it, but it wasn't like his own ingenuity that brought this about. But even more among that is there's notion of let us go to the house of the Lord. It's often the case more in my life, the more time I spend with people who are spiritual but not religious or along those lines, is the more individualized their faith is. So I was evangelized by an Uber driver this week down in Denver about his religion of 
and he called it a religion, which was fascinating, of just putting things out there. It was like a combination of uh, Marian Williamson, who he said was great. Um, uh, she's running for president, sort of a new age person. Joel Osteen, who he said was great, which like, I don't think those two are as compatible as you think they are. Um, and then, uh, man, there was like four other like guru, um, who's the one who wrote The Power of Now? Deepak Chopra. All that, he was like, all those people are great. And the funniest thing was like, I asked him who he voted for, and he was like, well, I voted for Donald Trump. And I was like, what a weird phenomenon of all these sort of new age influences combined into one thing. And then at the ballot box, he still like votes for something sort of weird in relation to that. And if this is a lesson to you, never get in an Uber with Matt, that is true. Do not um, get in an Uber with me because I just asked them fascinating questions. Um, but I was thinking about like the more enlightened people think they are on this path on their own, the less likely they are anywhere to go to someplace together. So I asked this guy, I said, you know, are you part of any communities that practice these things? Oh, every now and then one of the speakers comes to town and maybe I go and maybe I don't go. Like his, his profound truth that he was sharing with me, and he was, I was curious, I mean, he was sharing them to me. I asked him what his gospel was, and he, he told me what it was. Like he was, he was giving me his version of the truth, but it's like when it's just your version of the truth that you've picked out from the various of 40 different places, religions, thinkers, and et cetera, I often wonder, do you, if it was the truth, don't you think there'd be more than like one person who's discerned it and put it together, um, who figured it all out? And so for him to say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, would be a foreign thought. It's not something he would jump into. It's not something he would be excited about. I was glad to go to church. I was glad to be surrounded by other people. And it was clear at the end of the ride that he almost looked down on me and my friend as we were pastors. It was kind of like, you guys have to really just fake it through this, because I've given you the truth now, how are you going to live? Um, which is an interesting question, though, uh, if, if you had felt that he had given you the truth. Um, and yet we begin sort of this psalm of ascent with that call, is to let us go to the house of the Lord, let us bring our feet up to Jerusalem. This psalm continues with that Jerusalem is built like a city, and as we read it in English, it begins to sound like the, the psalmist is praising the, the building structure of Jerusalem. But in Hebrew, this, this phrase, these phrases that are talking about the building of Jerusalem are more often used for alliances. They're more often used for people and groups getting together. It's almost like Jerusalem has a harmony to it. It's not just that it's been built well, but it's this place of harmony that he goes up to. It is the place where the tribes ascend. It is the place where the name of the Lord is. This is a deep truth for, for these psalms and the psalmists, that where the name of the Lord is, God sort of resides in that place. Good things are there. And there stands the thrones of judgment. And this is the place where judgment was to be exercised wisely in the world. Jerusalem is this place that is called out to them. Jerusalem is this place of shalom and goodness. And, and I was thinking about Jerusalem this week, both with Revelation and other passages combined together, is what Jerusalem stands for is, there's two parts to this. One is the outsized influence of Jerusalem is insane. If you think about Jerusalem as what it is geographically in the small part of the world, then that even still today, 
It's a place we get news about continually, continuously. It's the uh, site of conflict for two of the world's three, no, three of the world's three major religions to some degree. Um, it still has this huge outsized influence. It's this, uh, and we use this phrase when we study the Old Testament often it here, it's this, it's this scandal of particularity with God, that somehow this place, more than other places, would have this sort of radiance of divine energy, but also that comes with it this radiance of conflict and destruction. Why the psalmist, even at this time, prays for the peace of this city. There might be geographic reasons why Jerusalem is important, but it still is ramped up to a way in which it just doesn't make sense. Now, for us, that might seem like, oh, that's past knowledge, but I think we can actually apply the same thing to the life of Jesus. It was one Jew who lived in the corner of the empire with no power, wrote no books, wrote no laws, um, wrote nothing, lived a pretty plain life, uh, miraculous as it be, but, but mainly interacted with only those he could touch and see, didn't actually sort of like broadcast or, or sort of, even as Paul wants to do, go to big arenas and sort of preach the gospel. He just sort of lives an itinerant preacher life, and he dies on a cross and is raised, leave that part of the story out for now, but like that, this one body, this one person has this outsized influence for us that almost makes no sense. It's this scandal of particularity that I think is the scandal of the gospel we tend to forget about, that, that we want to turn the gospel into sort of universal truths, universal precepts, universal laws, even um, universal sort of religion, and I mean that in this sense in a negative way, um, or a pejorative way, like that, that religion, you know, we manufacture these things to be universal because we are quite, when we think about it, I think when we honestly think about it, it's crazy that we think that this one life lived in obscurity for the most part contains the seeds of the universe that God was with him and God was there. So as we may think backwards to this relationship to this plot of Jerusalem, this city in the Middle East, it's true for us, probably even more so, because the city is at least more concrete. Whereas what we believe about Jesus and his body and his life says something else. And when we hear Jerusalem in this psalm, and when we hear Jerusalem or Zion throughout the Old Testament, I think it's helpful for us to think about other New Testament terms that connect to what they're really pointing to. Because as Jerusalem exists in a real way, it's also a figure of something else. It's almost a projection of what God's residency would look like. So the New Testament terms we have for this are, are the kingdom of heaven. You could sub in, what is this psalmist looking towards? It's the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew's term. Or if you wanted to break out even more, John's term to this is eternal life, which isn't just a life that comes to us in the future, but starts now when we believe into Jesus. And so, while we await the kingdom of heaven, and while we live our eternal kind of lives now, or um, Paul's language for this is a new creation at times, or new heavens and new earth, what we actually find is that these are realities in which we place hope in. They come to us in the present because God is in them. But they come as, as an ideal, and I, I can't remember what it says, but every ideal um, is a judge as well. When something becomes an ideal, it becomes 
away. And so for the first century psalm, or for the psalmist of Psalm 122, or for the person who believes in the kingdom of heaven, or in the new creation, or in the eternal life, they, they're these ideals that make clear the faults in the world that, in which we live. What Jerusalem is for ancient Israel is both a concrete place in the world, but it's also names a place where things is, are what they shall be in the end. It's like what we await in that Revelation passage. This new Jerusalem, this new heaven, this new earth. That this is sort of where we're going to. It's incidental, and this was a phrase I thought about a lot this week, and it's in a weird passage in the book of Galatians. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Uh, I just turned that thought over and over again in my head. Because uh, in the context, it's more complex about what Paul is talking about. Uh, Sarah and Hagar in the Old Testament uh, and stuff. This is Galatians 4 if you're in your Bible and you want to look it up. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. See, Paul, being a first century Jew himself, has this notion of this concrete Jerusalem, this concrete place. But he's talking about 